buckled in and ready to go on a Monday night. It's time for Iron Sports. It's 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Got Harrison, the intern, in as well. And it's going to be a good show. Ira, I don't know about you, but Harrison walked in today and he said the exact same thing that I was doing all weekend, watching baseball. I think everybody who's even a casual sports fan was just completely engulfed with all the action that we've had the last couple of days. Yeah, and I can't wait to talk about baseball. I mean, it was great to have baseball back, real games. And as we talked about, we said again and again and again, with the fan, I listen, I drove 24 hours to New York on Thursday uh, and, and, dro- and, fr- and Friday and drove up. So I'm listening to baseball Friday, listening to baseball the entire day. Um, and when you're listening on the radio, guess what? You don't miss fans at all. I mean, I listened to, I listened to like three, four games and uh, was not missing the fans one bit. No, no, you don't miss it at all. Uh, you know, I took in uh, some of the Yankees broadcast as well, driving back from Orlando, and, you know, it's nice to hear uh, old uh, John Sterling and Susan Waldman again. Speaking of baseball, Ira, we got a great interview for you tonight. It's going to be Jeremy Beer, and he, I'm a, a huge baseball fan. And I didn't know that this gentleman, Oscar Charleston, even existed, let alone that he's one of the best players ever. Well, it was Bill James a few years ago listed the best players in the history of baseball. Babe Ruth, you all know that. Honus Wagner from Pittsburgh, the star shortstop, Willie Mays. Everybody knows Willie Mays. Oscar Charleston. And then Ty Cobb. And I'm like, Oscar Charleston? Who is he? And then I started reading about him, and he played in the Black Leagues in 1915 to 35. Um, and then this book, Jeremy Beer, came out with his book about Oscar Charleston. We're going to talk about to Jeremy uh, at the end of the show. I read the book. Fascinating. Uh, Oscar Charleston, if anyone can think of someone, consider him like Bo Jackson with the power, the, the strongest player, the fastest player, uh, just an amazing career, uh, playing everywhere, playing games everywhere, and viewed by everybody at the time as he played the same time Babe Ruth played, and people thought he was better than Babe Ruth. So that just shows you how great Oscar Charleston was, and it's a great book, and it's a, a Jeremy Beer is an excellent author. I can't wait to talk to him. And yeah, we'll do that in just about 30 minutes here on Iron Sports. So Ira, let, let's get right into it. Um, you know, uh, getting a little worried here. It seems like after some news that came out today, baseball might be in trouble before it's even really started. You know what? I am not as concerned about everybody as everyone else is. Yes, the fact that a number of Marlins tested uh, positive for COVID-19. There's two games that are postponed, the Marlins game and the Phillies game against the Yankees uh, postponed at, at one game. But this was thought about this could happen. I mean, this was something that was planned. Um, one thing I'm going to say is that you have guys like Freddie Freeman that two weeks ago were having symptoms, not feeling well. He's back playing. I, I watched Freddie play this whole weekend, so he played. The point is that it's, it's sad that we have this, but it seems like nobody is having any, any symptoms at all. And these teams have other teams. Like, for instance, the Pirates in Altoona have like 30 guys in Altoona that are practicing. There's enough players to bring in, enough players to fill in. I'm not going to be ready to say this season's over, cancel the games. I think this was expected. Now, I think for college football, this could be a problem. When they see something like this, that is a concern. But for baseball, I think they're going to trudge through this. And they're going to say, Marlins, you might have to lose uh, for two weeks a bunch of your players, but we're going to bring in other players that, that have been tested positive, I mean, tested negative, uh, that are in the spring training sites that are working out every team has this other set of players that are going to be able to fill in and uh, I know this season's crazy but I don't see them stopping for this I mean if it happens on every team you have the serious problem but it's one team one instance I'm not ready to sound that the season is over alarm bell you know one thing that does worry me though like you said there's no shortage of players we've got guys that can fill in the roster but then it further taints this already bizarre season if we've got the equivalent of double a guys say facing off against the likes of garrett cole you know it's just i don't want to see teams getting easy wins because we're fielding half teams well i want to think you know there will be definitely an asterisk after the season is over and i understand there'll be an asterisk unless it's the dodgers or the yankees that win and uh but the point is is that i think that they're just going to try the the the, the, the ratings that seem like are very high especially for thursday night's games even though it was a rain out between the Nats and the Yankees. But uh, baseball was committed to going through this. They did not want to do a bubble. They didn't want to do a bubble in Arizona or Florida. They decided against the bubble format, just like football has decided against the bubble format. I mean, when you hear about things like the National Hockey League with the bubble, they tested 4,000 tests 
and they've had zero cases at 4,000 in their bubble. Uh, the NBA's been a little higher than that, but still, uh, it was just a few. We're talking, I think we'd be like a half a dozen at most. So the bubble seems to be working, and I think these sports leagues are committed to going forward with this, uh, with this as much as it can. So, Ira, before we get into uh, all the action, this was just news that I don't like one bit. Baseball historically is the hardest playoffs to get into. You've got to be good to be in the baseball playoffs. We've expanded now to 16 teams are going to make the playoffs. Harrison did the you know the the, bat, the legwork here. The Rangers and the Cubs would be the 8th seed if this was last year. They were both 78 and 84. So you're going to have sub 500 teams in the baseball playoffs. I just don't like this. Well, you saw what happened this weekend. Of all the games of all the series, after 3 games, there's no undefeated team and there's no team that 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 is, has no wins. Everybody either won one game or won two games. And it just shows you that nature of baseball, it's not like football. You can put the uh, Patriots against the worst team in the league, and they're going to win 20 out of 20 times almost. And, and certainly in basketball, same situation. The Brooklyn Nets were, are just awful with their players. Aren't beating the Lakers. They can play 50 times, maybe one game to win. But in baseball, pitchers, where the ball goes, it's not. That's why. And to go and break this season down to a best of three series, for the A team, so so you win. You're, you won. Say you win. We joke around. I said the Yankees won fifty some games or fifty five games or some crazy numbers. Say Yankees and Dodgers win fifty some games. Then they have a three game series. Anything can happen. And I think it's. And if they lose, then I think it totally cheapens the playoffs. Now it's great to have it. There's going to be a window, but it's a, it's a, it's the best of three. Now and also the, the the winner of the division and the second place get in with only two wild cards. And then you just have one through eight and seed it that way. Uh, just I'm against it. I wish they would have kept it the way it was. I don't like it, and I don't think it gives you any benefit to having this great regular season again. And I'm afraid that people will like this, and they're going to continue with this. It'll be you know, 16 of those 30 teams will make the playoffs. And I think it's going to be hard to follow, be excited about baseball for a whole season, 162 games, when you know that everybody's making the playoffs. No, I'm not a fan of this either, but I'm going to jump this into our trivia question of the week. So now these teams, these seven and eight seeds, are going to, six, seven, and eight seeds are going to have a chance to win a World Series. Do you know the team with the lowest or the worst winning percentage to ever win the World Series in the history of baseball? Worst winning percentage. I would say, I, I'm, 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 the Braves. I think the Braves one year had a low winning percentage. Nineteen ninety Oakland A's. It was the two thousand six uh, St. Louis Cardinals with a five one six. They mm. just snuck into the playoffs as a wild card. Right. Actually, won the World yes. Series that year against the Tigers in five games. So, you know, if one of these eight seeds comes in hot and they just rack off a bunch of wins, also I'm going to jump in and say the Marlins finally get in first place. And now they're trying to cancel the season. <laughs> yeah, Marlins <laughs> and Orioles leading their divisions. So uh, they they uh, they're either rooting for it to end now and take that title home or or do something. Um, you're listening to Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. We'll have uh, excellent author Jeremy Beer stopping by just about 25 minutes. You're on the True Oldies Channel. Um, so Ira, Yankees and Nationals. This was definitely the headline series of the weekend, and. You know, first game, John Carlos Stanton I, I, looks like the John Carlos Stanton of old, and then yesterday he looks like the real John Carlos Stanton, striking out four times. So let's talk about this uh, this Yankees Nat series because it was a good one. Well, I mean, Cole looks super sharp on Thursday, um, and then on Saturday, uh, the one thing you're scared about the Yankees is they get bad starting pitching. Pax James Paxton came out and was terrible, and and they and they were able to jump. That's were able to jump over the Yankees, and then Sunday. Um, so they did the, the bullpen by com- the starting pitching by committee again, which the Yankees did all last year. Worked out great. Labor Terrace played great with a home run. Uh, Luke Voigt hit a home run. Yankees used six pitchers. So, but I want to tell you something. Uh, as someone who follows the Yankees a lot, as long as everyone stays healthy, if Stanton can actually get a hole through an entire series and not get hurt, he had two home runs already. As a Yankee fan, I'm not a Yankee fan, but as a Yankee fan, I'm ecstatic. Ecstatic at Cole. And one of the most important things is that Garrett Cole, you look at these pitchers, and some of these superstar pitchers, when the season starts, they're a little off. They're like, oh, give it time. They're so good. Like last year, Cole didn't start out well, but he looked lights out. And if, he's, if you're going to start out lights out, you usually stay lights out. 
to look for a year where Cole might get be ten and one with a one something ERA and knowing that he gets great run support, all this other thing. So as a Yankees, I know they dropped that Saturday that the, the middle series, but I feel really happy with it with the season so far. And Max Scherzer didn't look not that he looked bad, but the Yankees hit him hard, and that might be something that they you know I, I wouldn't worry about it too far uh, too long, but you know being the first game of the season, but that is something to note. Yeah, Garrett Cole looked a lot sharper than uh, Max Scherzer, who they'll probably both be battling it out for Cy Young awards. Um. So, Ira, you had, uh, you know, had the thinking that the Dodgers were going to go sixty and zero, and now we're going to see that's not going to happen. Uh, well, they, they almost did. I mean, the first <laughs> two games they were won seventeen two over the Giants. I mean, the most boring games to follow. I mean, Kiki, as I said, there's so many people on the Dodgers every night that someone could get hit. Kiki Hernandez had five RBIs on Friday, even though Kershaw pulled said he was injured with a back tightness and left the game. They had, uh, and then Ross Stripling got. Um, one on, on Saturday, uh, 9-1. But then on Sunday, um, I mean, I did not, this is the one game I didn't stay up late for. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting, when I wake up the next day, I look to bed, it's like in the fifth inning, and it was like 3-1. I'm like, oh, they'll, they'll come back. The Dodgers will have an eight-run inning. And they didn't do it, which is shocking that they couldn't figure a way out to beat the Giants. But uh, still, I mean, it's, when they, it's just like Muncy has two home runs on Saturday. Um, there's so many players. And Mookie Betts, for the Dodgers, Mookie Betts, he hit 150 with just one RBI in those four games. But you see is the speed, the differences. I mean, I, the Dodgers look fantastic. I, I think, I mean, this, they look amazing. But I, I'd be nervous. I mean, as a fan, I want to see Yankees-Dodgers now in the World Series. You know, a little nervous about that best-of-three first round. But still, I thought the Dodgers, I mean, they should have, look, you can't drop games like that against the Giants. They've got to win all their games. <laughs> so. um, let's move on. Ira, is there a guy who is probably, like, is, is more of a bad luck guy than, than Jacob deGrom? I mean, uh, it, it's hard to say that he's not the best pitcher in baseball. And if he was on a team like the Yankees or Houston, he'd probably have 25 wins a year. And the Mets just don't put it up for him, and that's exactly what we got. DeGrom was masterful, got the win, but the Mets really were not supporting him. But this was still a good series. Well, I liked, we talked about this more. Cespedes hit a home run. I, I, he plays DH. This is crucial for them when they had their run a couple years ago. Daniel Murphy and Cespedes were hitting home runs all the time. Uh, he had a home run. They won one nothing on Friday. Um, and they actually, their bullpen held the one nothing lead. Of course, they then blow it on, uh, Saturday. Diaz blows the save to the Braves. And the Braves look good. I mean, the Braves, when you watch the Braves play, the, last year they were young, but Zuna has been a great, he was two for four, uh, yesterday with one home run. Albies, uh, was three for six with a home run. Um, and, and Dasty Swanson, five RBIs. I mean, the Braves won last night 14. I mean, that was really last night. Setting in to see, okay, Braves Mets. I'm excited for this game. It's like 10-1 in a second inning. Rick Porcello, who I said was great on the show, like I know he has his higher ERA, but man, he was terrible. And JD Davis in left field. I, it would be how he looked like those guys at the All Star game on the home run hitting contest. Like it, like three balls were over his head. Now I know they were hard hit, but either back up or move or run faster. But it looked pathetic. Like the effort he gave on. And the outfield was like some of these little leaguers that are trying to catch these balls. Like it's like, did he forget how to play defense? And I was calling my Mets fans. I go, is Davis a bad outfielder? Like, what? Why can't? Why is he struggling out there? I think someone said on the show last week the Braves are going to be really good this year. Couldn't remember who it was. Uh, yeah, I got the Braves. I can see them in the World Series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so do I. I think they're going to win. <laughs> um, uh, Cubs Brewers, Ira, and this was uh, the NL Central matchup that we that we wanted to see. Brewers are another team that's going to be good this year. The Brewers will be good, but, uh, but, but certainly the Cubs took two out of three. Um, and as someone who's look, you want to have your ace look great. Kyle Hendricks, shout out to the Cubs. I mean, that's amazing. You go out first game and you don't see shutouts in baseball, but he's Complete he, game he, he the three or shutout on the Brewers. And, uh, it was interesting. I know in the second game where the Brewers won, uh, you get, and I followed the game a little bit, the dugouts were like yelling at each other. But I think everyone is concerned about having a fight. I think a fight right now, I think the commission has said, you fight, you're just, you know, it's going to be a disaster. So I think it was one of those games where I think the players wanted to fight, all that stuff. And I just think that they held back because it would be a, it would be a terrible look if the players started fighting. Um, but eventually, it's going to have to happen sometime. But that was the one game where they thought it could potentially happen. Going out to the NL East, we had a uh, matchup of our Miami Marlins versus the Phillies, and I think the Marlins would be happy if they could keep playing like this. Oh, you know what? They are playing well. I mean, this is the first time they had four home runs 
in the third game. They, they took two out of three from the Phils. And as I, I was concerned about the Phils with the starting pitching, they got a great win by Zach Wheeler in that second game. But the other two games, not really good starting pitchers, got totally destroyed on, on Sunday. Um, and Bryce Harper had a home run last night. But the fact that they got, it seems like the Marlins, and, and, and Dickerson, and Anderson home runs, Rojas was at four RBIs. You're really, some of these you know, Marlin players are coming on, and, and I was discounting them as awful. And uh, But I guess the Phillies starting pitching is terrible. That's one thing that's going to hold the Phillies back all year, is that it's just waiting for their starting pitching to improve a little bit. And uh, they really did, do, you know, the Wheeler pitched great, though. And as a, people who are Met fans, they're like, mm, that's one. A lot of Met fans love Zach Wheeler, and they, they were sad to see him go to the Phillies. I think that was the first time they won their opening series since 2014, where they took two out of three against the Rockies. I think they were only like eight games under 500 that year, so I think it's a good good start for the Marlins this year. <laughs> um, let's talk about, uh, you know, Harrison, you got um, the Tampa Bay Rays uh, yep. in, in the World Series. Let's talk about that one. And this was, Rays are, are a young, decent team, and Toronto is another young, up-and-coming squad. Yeah, this was an awesome series to watch. Uh, Friday, Tampa lost 6-4. Charlie Morton was a disaster. And they're done like 6-1 and almost came back, scored a couple of runs uh, in the eighth and ninth inning, still lost. Saturday, eighth inning rally, Brandon Lowe had a huge triple and then scored on a balk to have a 4-1 win for the Rays. Their bullpen is also as good as advertised and also without Garcia. There's it's an incredible bullpen. And then Sunday yesterday, great game, 6-5 win in extras. They're down 4-0. Uh, G-Man Choi, this guy is good. No one talks about this guy enough. He was clutch for them yesterday. And Kevin Kiermaier had a walk-off triple in the 10th. I love the new uh, extra inning rules, by the way. Gets the game over fast, and I really like the Rays this year. They looked really good this weekend. They could have easily swept if they could have had a little more of a rally on Friday. They're taking on the Braves. This is my World Series preview right here. I'm getting excited for this game <laughs> starting tonight. And this is this is the team to watch for this year. Them and the Yankees are going head to that AL East. Ira, let's wrap up baseball with your Pittsburgh uh, Pirates. How'd they do? Um, the Pirates looked uh, horrendous. Uh, first two. I mean, the first game, it's 5-4. They, they cut it. It was like 5-1. And they scored some runs at the end. I, was, I listened to the entire game. They got destroyed 9-1 in the second one. And then the Pirates came back and won the third. And again, even the bad teams, it shows the bad teams. The Pirates, though, aren't going to make much. But for the Cardinals, uh, uh, Paul Goldschmidt and DeJong both are hitting 400. I mean, after a certain game, but they seem to play well. But, uh, that division is just going to be, you know, Milwaukee and Chicago and, and St. Louis and the Reds. It's, it's a tough division. But the fact now the players are expanded, my gosh, you're actually going to see some of these divisions get you know, maybe four teams now in the playoffs in terms of how it, how it is. It's almost like when the, uh, ACC gets like all their basketball teams in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, um, NCAA basketball tournament. Harrison, what uh, series do we have coming up this week? Uh, Mets and Red Sox are tonight at 7.30. I'd be very surprised if the Mets lost this series. I'll get the Red Sox-Yankees later in the week. Uh, Mets-Braves, obviously Braves-Rays tonight. Uh, Nats-Marlins, hopefully that happens later in the week. Uh, Cardinals-Twins, it's a good matchup there. Dodgers-Astros, a 2017 World Series rematch. Astros-Angels, hopefully Shohei Otani can get uh, his balance back after a terrible performance yesterday. And Dodgers-Diamondbacks, also later in the week. You're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, Mike Balsamo, alongside as well, Harrison, the intern. Uh, we've got Jeremy Beer coming up in uh, just about 15 minutes or so. So Ira, he got his wish. Jamal Adams is packing his bags, heading to Seattle. Jets got two first-round picks and a, and a third-round pick out of this. Uh, only had to give back a fourth. So I'm from New York, and my friends are probably split 50-50 as Jets fans and Giants fans. I got to tell you, the Jets fans are all over the place in this, Ira. A lot of them hate this trade, and I think that is ridiculous. They should be thrilled to be getting two first-round picks for a guy who's trying to actively mutiny against a coach and is just a cancer in the locker room. Well, I, I agree. I'm, I was shocked. I mean, they said, the Jets said, we're not trading him. I mean, there was an article in the New York Post. I guess it was the day before the trade. It said they're never trading him unless they get totally blown away. And then Seattle comes and blows them away with two first-round picks. Now, I know Seattle could be drafting later. Maybe they're not high first-round picks. But two, I mean, I want to analyze something. Minka Fitzpatrick for the, uh, for, the, for the Steelers. You saw what kind of difference he made this year. And everybody said, oh, the Steelers gave him a number one pick for Minka Fitzpatrick. I think Mika Fitzpatrick is better than, than Jamal Adams. Like, I think the, the Steelers got the better player, and you saw how he played. I think two first-round picks is crazy, but clearly Seattle wanted him, and the Jets had to get rid of him. They, had, they couldn't keep him. He was bashing the coach, bashing the general manager. I mean, it just shows you these players, these NFL players now are pushing themselves out. If they don't like the situation, then Taylor Ramsey. But, I mean, it was like 
Jalen Ramsey, the Jacksonville from the Rams, got two first-round picks. Khalil Mack from Oakland got two first-round picks from the Bears. But you're saying Jamal Adams, I know he's been a two-time pro ball guy. He was an all-pro last year, by first-team all-pro. But is he that good? Well, he was. I mean, he got two, two first-round picks for it. I think Jets did a great job. Now they have to convert with that. They have to make those. I mean, people were comparing it to the Christoph Persingis trade when the Knicks traded Persingis as a first-round pick, and, and they got some good draft picks, but really didn't do anything with those draft picks. And now they got draft picks. You have to move forward. I thought it was funny. Levy and Bell blasted Jamal Adams, saying, like, you talked me to come into the Jets. You told me to come here, and now you leave. <laughs> he was, like, so mad. It's like, why would you do this to me? Um, because I don't think Bell – I don't think this is a good situation for Levy and Bell. I don't think he wanted to be part of this rebuilding effort. And I think that from Levy and Bell's perspective uh, – I mean, I think for Antonio Brown, if you look at Levy and Bell and Antonio Brown, they would have stayed for Pittsburgh, signed the contracts that were on the table, They'd be much happier playing for a winning team with the defense they had. Steelers are, would be one of the favorites for the Super Bowl. I think both of them would totally regret their decision. You know, it's kind of funny that you bring it up like that and you mentioned basketball. Um, this is the NFL, and, and a lot of people that, I, that, that are mad, like, well, you know, Seattle's going to be in the Super Bowl hunt. This is going to be pick 26, 28. That doesn't matter. This is the NFL. You should be getting starters with your first four picks. It's not the NBA where the top three guys are the only ones who are going to have decent careers, if that. So uh, any first-round pick is more leverage. They can trade up for Trevor Lawrence if that's what they decide they want to move on for for Darnold. It it just gives you so many uh, options that I would be absolutely thrilled with this pick, even if they are late-round firsts. Have you seen the Jets draft before? (laughs) The Giants, too. Jets and Giants draft terribly. And that's why I think the fan bases are more like, uh, I don't care about this. I got to need the number one pick or it's not going to work out. We're, we're bad drafters. I but think, then you know, Pittsburgh gets that, starters in every round. A team you're forgetting that doesn't draft well either is the Seattle Seahawks. Yes. They look at the last like, four or five first-round picks. Jermaine Ifeidi, Rashad Penny, LJ Collier, they took in last year's first round. I didn't even know this. And they took Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech, linebacker in this year's draft. I think this is a great trade for Seattle. They're a very ch- crowded championship hunt in the NFC with the Cowboys, Eagles, Packers, Vikings, Saints, Bucks, 49ers, and Rams. And they need another play in the defensive help. And we know Pete Carroll loves defensive backs. He came into the NFL as a defensive backs coach with the Minnesota Vikings, I think, in 1984. And look, they haven't drafted well. Why don't you go all in? And they're, I think they're a Super Bowl contender in the NFC. And you look at it from the Jets' perspective, they had to get rid of him after his contract last week. They got a good, solid return back with Bradley McDougal, a veteran safety, played for the Chiefs, Bucks, Seahawks. He's never been a top-ten safety, but last year in the playoffs played really well, 11 tackles, and they're winning against Philadelphia. And these are going to be mid-to-high draft picks. And they thought they had a pretty good draft last year. They got Mekhi Beckett from Louisville, Denzel Mims from Baylor, Ashton Davis from Cal, who's now going to be Adam's replacement, Michael P. Ryan. But I think another perspective that people are not thinking about is the Dallas Cowboys. This guy literally said in that uh, video for the supermarket, he said that he's trying to go to the Cowboys. And the Cowboys had all the pieces. They could have given up all of this to the Jets, but they didn't. They took Seattle's offer, and this is big. I think Jerry is going to regret not making this trade for Jamal Adams. He wanted to play for them. He obviously still could if he leaves in free agency, but... This is a big miss from the Dallas Cowboys. So, Ira, it's interesting that, you know, Minka Fitzpatrick gets brought up here. And that was just one first-round pick. And, like, you know, to the point that we're making about it, the Jets don't draft well. Seattle doesn't draft well. When you, like, what what Pittsburgh did was basically swapping their pick. You know, I think it ended up being the 12th or the 13th pick. That's right about where Minka Fitzpatrick went. But this guy's proven in the NFL to be good already. There's so much less risk. I think it's a no-brainer. Right. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I, look, this could work out to be a win-win for both teams. I think Seattle made this because of one player, Russell Wilson, and Pete Carroll, too. The fact is, they think they have the best quarterback in the NFC. Maybe the best quarterback in, besides Patrick Mahomes. You know, they, they think he's better at the end of the games than Mahomes. They'd rather go. So you're, if you have a player like that, you have someone that good as, as Russell Wilson. The idea is, what's your window? This is now. They wanted to improve the defense. They were known to have this great defense. It all fell apart. Um, and I think they're, they're wanting to get that back again. And they felt this was a quick way to bring someone in like that. So it could be a win-win. But as I said, as a Jets fan, it seems like a step back for the Jets. And then someone who's really like, every year the Jets are, wait till next year, wait till next year. You don't want to see something like this because you're like, ah, you know, like I thought, we got to start making some positive steps. You don't want to see one of your star young players get traded right now. It's one of those things. I hear a lot of Jets fans saying, well, now it's a wasted season. The season's over before it started. You guys were not making the playoffs anyway. This team's not good. They may have the worst wide receivers in football. They brag about their 6-2 and two finish last year. They beat, like, Matt Barkley, yeah, uh, the Jaguar. They take, the draft the picks, take the draft picks and restock here. Ira, what's going on with college football? I haven't heard anything. <laughs> Nothing. 
Well, I wrote in my heart, we have an outline we put together, and I said college football, nothing. Because it really, this week is, I mean, it's the one sport that everyone is, I mean, I get more questions on college football than anyone. I mean, I get every day, and I'm like, I think they're just holding pattern. They're just waiting to see what's happening. I think this Marlins situation hurts. I, the, when the Marlins thing happened, I didn't think about baseball, because I said, baseball's going to get through this. They're going to get through their professional college football. It's the most it's the most tenuous and difficult sport because they're eighteen to twenty one year old kids. They're in college. The, the, the rosters are enormous. The, the complexity of being on a college campus is just more. These baseball players, even though they're not in a bubble, when they're home, when they're done, they're going back to their house and their family and their kids. And they have probably very large houses they're they're quarantining in or staying in. I mean, these kids are going back to college campus. It's, it just seems so difficult. And that's what gets me so concerned about college football. I know they're going to try to work it, but it, 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 it just, it's, more, it's much more difficult to see that college football is going to pull this off. Ira, let's uh, go to basketball. And I think basketball and hockey have been really doing a pretty good job here. we got Zion Williamson back in the bubble. What's the latest with the NBA? <laughs> well, I mean, there's things that are going on. I mean, I think Lou Williams. Uh, for the Clippers, he goes there. They're allowed to go if you get excused absence from the bubble. You can leave. And Lou went to a funeral. It's terrible. Someone, a mentor of his, passed away. But then he was seen in a in a gentleman's club later that day. <laughs> and of all the excuses are like, I mean, I mean, the excuses. I'm a playboy because I'm looking for the articles, not the pictures, and those types of things. And I always got the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition because look, I'm reading about sports. It just happens they put girls in bikinis there but lou was saying that he goes to the gentleman's club for their uh wings yes. and they have the best wings that you can imagine and that's why he was there with one of the best excuses now the nba did not buy that excuse they felt that it was and they gave him a 10 10 day now he's being quarantined not four day quarantine but you're going to see so many of these stories about people leaving coming back i mean there's family issues they have to take attend to there's certain situations they have to leave so if you're going to run into that a lot in terms of uh of what's going to happen in the bubble. But it seems like, look, we thought when this first happened, there's going to be a lot of players not playing. It seems like there are, since the first initial, the Kyrie Irving, the defections, we didn't know was going to play, but, but some of these first defections like Avery Bradley, but there really hasn't been any more yet. So I think the NBA, from that perspective, you're not seeing a whole spike of cases. Uh, I think they should be really happy with how it's starting out right now. Ira, anything else NBA? We've got about just seven or so minutes until we got to get to uh, Jeremy Beer. Anything else before uh, we talk about this week's uh, upcoming games? Well, the big thing for the NBA was it starts on Thursday, but the Knicks hired Tom Tiborough, and yes. that, was a, that was a big choice of who they were going to get as a coach. Uh, everyone knows Tibbs as being the defensive genius at the Celtics and the Rockets before that, but the Celtics that shut down LeBron James, that won the title. He's been everywhere. He's 62 years old. He used to he would, he would uh, play basketball with Kobe Bryant. He worked out when he was in high school with him uh, every day for like an entire year. Um, and, he, and he was at the, and he was a coach of the Bulls and led them to two, two, uh, twice the best record in the whole NBA, and they ended up not winning any titles there. Went to Minnesota, had some runs, but he's known as a tough coach, demanding coach, uh, defensive-minded. Um, it doesn't seem like with a young crew that, that uh, the, the Knicks have it would work, but he is the best coach out there, and uh, I, I think that, look, defensively, that's what the Knicks have to do, and uh, they're happy with this select. You know, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good pick, I think, for with the Knicks, for Tiboreau. I I've always thought that defensively, when you saw what he did with LeBron and how he was able to, uh, to stop the Lakers, um, just a great defensive mind, and his players, like Jimmy Butler, I mean, they went to Minnesota for his players. They, they play hard, but the ones that get, you know, he's a tough coach, but people buy into that toughness. I don't know how many, many players are left doing that, but I think, it, so, I think it was a good hire for the Knicks. As a Knicks fan, love it. I've wanted him in the building for a long time, and I think uh, this, is, this is a step in the right direction with, with a young team that needs, uh, needs some foundation here. Harrison, what uh, games were you watching this week? All right, Thursday, big NBA return. We're going to see Zion take on the Jazz at 6.30, then the Lakers-Clippers opening night part two. They're going to play nine. Friday, Grizzlies, Trailblazers in the battle for the 8th seed. They're going to play at 4. Celtics, Bucks, two of the best teams in the East, are going to go at 6.30. Rockets, Mavericks at 9. Saturday, we're going to see our hometown Miami Heat take on the Denver Nuggets at 1 o'clock. Then the Jazz, Thunder at 3.30. Lakers versus the defending champion Raptors at 8.30. Sunday, Celtics, Blazers, 3.30. Bucks, Rockets, 8.30. Then next Monday, week from today, we're going to be talking about the Raptors taking on the Heat and then previewing the Jazz versus the Lakers at 9. All right, guys, so I've got a trivia question for you. And unlike Harrison's trivia questions, right. it's not statistic-based. It's very subjective. Harrison, what's the most important position in sports? I would say the answer is quarterback. A quarterback. Yes. So the the question is, what's the second most important position in sports? Goalie, in hockey. goalie in hockey. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. I Absolutely. The same way. And this is going to be 
I have a, a real feeling it's whatever team catches fire here at the goaltending position is going to, to be at least in the finals. And I really like the Panthers here. I, I think they're a, a talented offensive team, defense a little lackluster, but they have a goalie in Sergei Bobrovsky who's been Vesna caliber for the last five years. He had a really, really bad start here in, in Florida, but this is a clean slate, and I'm really looking forward to the uh, NHL coming back this week, guy. And he was outstanding last year well, in the postseason. Really outstanding last year in the postseason yes. with uh, Columbus it was. Mm-hmm. And again, against the Bruins, they did fall short in that series, but that's a big advantage. Swept the number one seed yep. Tampa Bay I do, I do the think round. the Islanders are going to win this series. <laughs> what, do you, what do you got, I? Well, I think what's interesting is people have to understand the NHL is in their playoffs now. Like, this is not a, a comeback tournament or whatever. This is the playoffs. They are starting playoffs right now. Now, there's a play-in to the playoffs. There are some games that are going to not or count for seeding, but there are players that are going to be best-of-five series that are going to be going on here. The NBA is not in the playoffs. They still have eight games left. So you're going to be watching some of these NBA games, and these teams are like, what do I care what seed I am? It doesn't really matter seeding. I don't get home court. There's no home court. Those things. And the really, the East, there's no one battling. Washington will not get in. So that's out. So don't even think about these. The West has an interesting race. You have uh, Portland and Memphis and New Orleans are all probably battling for that last playoff spot in the West. But short of that, there's a lot of NBA teams that are going to be caring about. But I'm excited for the NHL starting on Saturday. You think basketball is Thursday and that show on Saturday because this is playoff hockey. And how many people just say, I don't really follow hockey during the season, but those playoffs I get into. Well, you've got playoffs right now. And it's going to be uh, some some real good series. And I do think that Islanders-Panthers series will be the best series uh, of this of this opening weekend. I think the teams are very well matched. And I do think this one goes five games. But I'm taking the Panthers mm-hmm. over the Islanders. Ira, I don't know if you saw, we have a new franchise uh, starting next year. It's the Seattle Kraken. Year after. Uh, okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, next Year after. So I love the name. I think it's really cool. I hate the logo. I, I, I don't know how you are the Kraken without a big octopus on the front of your jersey. <laughs> well, I think, look, Seattle, was uh, they, they built this arena for the Kraken. They, they're trying to get a basketball team there also. Um, when they lost the, the Sonic, they lost the Sonic to Oklahoma City, where the Thunder used to be Seattle. I mean, Kevin Durant could have been winning all these titles in Seattle. So this is sort of Seattle's way to come back into uh, into the sports world in terms of having a four-sports town. They don't have a basketball team yet, but if we you know, we talked to Tim Frank on I mean, it seems like Seattle's on everybody's short list to be the next basketball team. But I love the name. I mean, I, I mean they went through a whole thing with like 100 names, this whole thing. It was crazy how they came up with Kraken. Um, and that's why you see the, the Washington Redskins, now it's called the Washington football team, they're going to take a year to do that. They didn't want to rush into another name. I mean, this was a long process that Seattle had, and Kraken seems like a different type of name, so... Nobody else uses it, so it sounds pretty good. And did you see they had like five finalists and they sealed it in an envelope and put it in a time capsule in the space needle that they're going to open up in like 2062? <laughs> I did not see that. I, I am a sucker for teams with no S, though. Heat, magic, jazz. Uh, lightning, jazz. I love that. So Kraken, they're automatically on my short list of teams that I like. Ira, um, I'm always excited when I see a former Honda Classic winner doing well, especially a smaller name, Michael Thompson got a big win this weekend. And, you know, us being in the media, I've dealt with Michael Thompson related to the Honda Classic. Couldn't be a nicer guy. So happy for him. Well, Michael Thompson, for 2008, he was the world's top amateur for, at least, for a little bit. Then 2012, he led the U.S. Open at the first round, finished second in the U.S. Open in 2012 as a young golfer like Michael Thompson. And then from, he wins the Honda in 2013. He's 44th in the world. And then from 2013 to 2019, he didn't even hardly play in a major, let alone make a cut or anything. Totally disappeared off everything. But I love it when a player, we saw Keith Mitchell last year, what he did was able to do in the Honda. When a player wins this tournament, it's a three. It was not a big tournament because we had the PGA Championship coming up, the World Golf Championship, then the PGA. So very few people entered. It was only uh, four of the top 30 were in the world even entered the tournament. But the win secured an exemption for the PGA Tour for two years, the World Golf Championship, the Masters, PGA Championship, U.S. Open. Uh, just an amazing win for him in terms of what he needed. So I like that. Uh, the tournament was interesting because Dustin Johnson shot a 78 the first day and then just withdrew for a, a back tightness. Brooks Kepka, who was trying to get into the tour championships. I mean, Brooks could be in a situation like Tiger was a few years ago where he does not even make the championships. He only has two more chances, really, to get back, get into this, the tour championships. He missed the cut. Tommy Fleetwood missed the cut. Bubba Watson missed the cut. And Tony Fina was the only one of the top 30 to actually make it. He finished, like, in fourth or fifth place. But Thompson ended up winning in the, on Sunday 
birdied out from the uh, birdied out from the sand trap on 16. Was able to par 17 on 18 when you really just needed a par to win. He birdied it, so had a nice win there for him. And uh, it caught a great guy and, and Honda. I love when people say the only time they won the you know Honda Classic. So a very good win. But now we're going to get back to again next week World Golf Championship. All the top golfers, but Tiger will be there. And then the PGA Championships the following week. The the, the only major we're going to see this up until September. And then they have a week where they throw blazing and then three tour championships. There's really five more golf championships, five more golf tournaments left in the year. Harrison, uh, running out of time. What's going on with MLS? All right, MLS round of 16 started Saturday night. Orlando beat Montreal one nothing on a Tesho Akadeli goal in the 60th minute. They're going to play the winner of Seattle LAFC tonight, at, uh, and they're going to play that game Saturday at 7:30. Uh, Philadelphia remain unbeaten at this tournament. They beat New England Revolution one nothing on a Sergio Santos goal. They're going to play uh, KC on Thursday at 8 p.m. NYCFC. I think you should hop back on that bandwagon. They dominated <laughs> Toronto three one. They're going to play the Portland Cincinnati winner. And last night the game ended at like 1:30 a.m. Sporting KC beat. Vancouver in penalties after 0-0 through regulation and extra time. They took a 3-1 on penalties. Um, they should have won regulation, but it took them a while to win it. And coming up tonight, Real Salt Lake is going to take on San Jose at 8-30. And at 11, LAFC, the team I picked to win this whole tournament, takes on another pre-tournament favorite Seattle Sounders in a rematch of last year's uh, Western Conference Finals. So when we talk next week, we'll be previewing the semifinals. So Ira... I, I thought my phone was in a time machine or something. Back, went back to 1992 because my phone started blowing up with text that Mike Tyson is going to fight Roy Jones Jr. <laughs> I know. Mike Tyson hasn't fought in 15 years. Kevin, he fought 15 years ago against Kevin McBride. Uh, Roy Jones has been fighting. He's 51, but he's been uh, uh, just not looking good. I mean, when they announced Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr., everyone's talking about it. I said the state of boxing in terms of what we're, what we are right now in terms of uh, of where it, it, but when Tyson moves the needle and I think people are excited about this and uh, it's going to be September twelfth eight rounds and uh, it should be interesting I mean it, it's I will of course watch it I'm not looking I mean I think because I just would watch Tyson do anything um, in terms of what could happen and, and uh, because I for nine years. I mean, for the hit nine fights, not nine years. But the question with Tyson is, what if, what if, what if? I mean, he could have gone down as, as, as the greatest heavyweight champion in the world. It looked like he was uh, for that period of time. But, uh, boy, did that move the needle when they announced it. It was like the big story of the day. So, Ira, um, UFC has this weird way of captivating even the the least active, avid sports fan. Uh, I, I'm with my, my sister, my fiance, and my 13-year-old niece on Saturday night, and they were glued to the TV watching UFC. And it, it wasn't the best card, but we got some good fights. Well, just the main fight was Robert Whitaker, the middleweight championship. Whitaker's the number two ranked, until who was a former champion, and Till was the number six. And what I like, this was a very, very close fight. Whitaker ended up winning. It goes to the fifth round, and Whitaker just barely won. I mean, we've been talking about all these fights that come down to those final rounds, and Whitaker barely, you know, just barely. See, I saw it, and I thought Whitaker deserved the victory. But it was, a, it was. A, now he has a chance to reclaim the uh, uh, title uh, that he lost uh, in October. What fights do we have this weekend? Um, there's really no, I would like to say UFC 251 on August 15th, uh, Miasic and Cormier, that's the heavyweight champion, Miasic against Cormier, uh, number one ranked contender. And then you have Junior Dos Santos, number five against Rosenstruck, number six. So you have two, you have that championship match and another great heavyweight fight. That UFC 251. I really like how UFC does it, where they put really every division, all the top guys together in that one on that one card. So that, and that's going to be back at the apex. So we saw the Whitaker Till was the last on Fight Island. Now they're back in Las Vegas. And you got to give people like NASCAR, UFC, uh, golf. They have paved the way for all these team sports that were coming back. And uh, they really, you know, they, they, they did everything with the protocols and the, the athletes and tried to get around and do everything they had to do. So I give them a lot of credit for, uh, for, for getting back sports. So they were the first three sports to come back. Let's go to Jeremy Beer on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're talking to Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Jeremy, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. It's my pleasure. Thanks. So, Jeremy, when, when I first heard about Oscar Charleston, I'm like, who? And I, it came when that Bill James, and Bill James ranked Oscar Charleston uh, the fourth best baseball player of all time. And I'm like... I don't never heard of him. And I'm sports. I have my own sports show. I'm this. How would I not know this? And then, of course, I read a little bit about him and had an understanding. But it's amazing in terms of 
as I said, Bill James ranked him as the fourth best player behind uh, Ruth and Cobb and and Mays, and uh, just a just an amazing thing in terms of you chose to to glorify Oscar's career. I had the exact same experience as you. I thought I was a big sports fan. Uh, I didn't have a radio show. <laughs> I got a dingy for that, Ira. But uh, no, I. I was reading James's uh, new historical baseball abstract, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of the fourth greatest player of all time. And it's, of course, something that you're a little bit skeptical of when you first read, and, and James knew that, and he goes on at some length in that book to defend his ranking. Um, but Oscar Charleston, the more you read about him and dig into him, the more it's very clear that James's uh, high regard for him was completely justified. I mean, he played from 1917 up until 1935 in the Black Leagues. And uh, it was just when you, re- and as James said, for seven years, he could be considered the MVP. And he played the same time as Ruth and as Cobb. And people in his peers regarded him as the best player in baseball, which is amazing. Yeah, he, he had a very long career. Uh, he was a, uh, it started. As you say, in the teens with the Indianapolis ABCs, went on to play for the Harrisburg Giants and the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Harris, uh, Homestead Grays, number of teams, and was clearly the consensus uh, greatest player uh, in black baseball in the 1920s, Late started probably in the late teens and throughout the 1920s, and then not a few people said he was the greatest all-around player they'd ever seen, period, including a number of, of white observers, uh, people like Honus Wagner said he was as good as anybody would ever seen, uh, Happy Chandler, the former commissioner of baseball, said that Charleston and Cobb are the two greatest he'd ever seen. Number of others. Yeah, he was a, he was a five tool player. Uh, he could he could run, hit for hit, hit for power. Um, uh, had, a, had a good arm, uh, and was a great great defensive center fielder. So I I tell people think of a, a, a left handed Mike Trout if you're if you're into the game today, and that's essentially kind of what Charleston was like. And I was wrong with being the show. I said the, the fourth was Ruth, Honus Wagner, Willie Mays, Oscar Charleston, then Ty, right. then Ty Cobb. And he had movie star good right. he had, he was had had a, had a very amazing personality, uh, engaging. He had movie star looks. He was fashionably dressed before in at a time when it, it was and he was also a star in Cuba. He went down to Cuba with his wife and they were like A-Rod mm-hmm. and, and and J-Lo in terms of in Cuba in terms of being both celebrities <laughs> down there. It's like so the question is how how in the world does someone who is viewed like this, there's no recognition. Like I heard of Josh Gibson. I heard of Satchel Paige. Why did, right. why did he go? Now he's in the Hall of Fame. He got in the Hall of Fame in 1976. But why does yeah. he not have the recognition that, that even many of these black league pl- uh, players had? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a mystery, and I, I can't claim to have solved it entirely. I think there are a number of converging reasons. Uh, first thing is just consider history is unjust. It is not, so, it is not sort of a perfect sifter. You know that only that we always remember the people who deserve to be remembered, and so while yes, we do Satchel Paige is the name everybody knows. You know something about him, but Satchel Paige was an unparalleled character. Number one and number two, he did play in in the um, National League or Ameri- in the American League, right? So he played in, after integration. Gibson, we remember somewhat because of the prodigious home runs and the legends that collected around that. But he was a later figure than Charleston. He was the next generation, and he was somebody who could have played, um, it was thought, after integration. Of course, he died tragically and young. Um, and he also was connected with Paige. If you think about it, we know Paige, Gibson, cool Papa Bell is a name everybody knows. But how many Negro League stars of the previous generation does anybody know? And I think the answer is basically nobody. Only That's, that's really the story here is that we got a little bit of that last generation seeped into the collective sort of memory and consciousness of America, uh, but the, the generations before, nobody made it through. So in that sense, Charleston just sort of stands for everybody else. He also had the bad luck of not leaving any children behind, so there was no one to tend his flame. That's another reason. And then the last one I would say is his home city, Indianapolis, for whatever reason, just never claimed him. Uh, even though he grew up in the same neighborhood as Oscar Robertson, the great basketball star, um, who has been claimed by the city quite well. Um, he, so if you don't have that kind of local claim or a family claim, and you were the previous generation of Negro Leagues players, um, I guess he didn't have much of a chance to be remembered. Um, and then, you know, you said he was born in Annapolis, and I liked when you described in the beginning of the book and uh, about how there was – 
black leagues and white I mean, in terms of everybody playing baseball on a semi-pro basis, a pro mm-hmm. basis, uh, everything, just that we, we could never imagine it today that every kid would run outside and just be playing baseball. There's games going on everywhere around town. Everybody's nights was filled. It was like a sea of baseball all the time yeah. in Indianapolis. Yeah, and I think Indianapolis is representative of pretty much every other city uh, in America at the time as well. You'd write black teens, semi-pro, just purely amateur, professional. Same for white teens. Black teens played against white teams um, all the time, which happened everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, you couldn't have that in today's sort of highly organized, uh, sort of helicopter-parented uh, world. But that was a very <laughs> – it wasn't the world – uh, that existed more than 100 years ago. And baseball was the sport um, for blacks and whites both. There really wasn't anything close. And then we had John Pessa on who talked about the Yogi Bear and when Yogi Bear dropped out of school in eighth grade and then just started playing baseball all the time. But you mentioned how Oscar drops out at eighth grade and then at 15 goes to the army and then is in the Philippines. And that's where he yeah. gets, and, and he really wasn't fighting wars and anything in 1915. He was just playing baseball. And that's began when he became this legend in the Philippines because baseball was popular. So you had all those leagues and he just played every day and he became the best baseball player in all of the Philippines. Yeah, baseball was part of um, American policy, uh, American essentially colonial policy, you know, to uh, Americanize the natives, so to speak. You introduce baseball because baseball is the most American thing there is. And so the Manila League was the um, highest professional league in the Philippines. And um, it was a 14 league, the Army, Navy, Marines, and then an all Filipino native uh, team. And I think the Marines are the team that dropped out that allowed an opening that was filled by uh, Oscar's regiment, the 24th Infantry. And so he got his start playing professional baseball in Manila. And it's really interesting. He's you know he's 17 years old. Uh, and yet there's a man also on his team named Wilbur Rogan, who, who goes on to get the nickname Bullet Joe Rogan. He's also in the Hall of Fame, became a great two-way player in the Negro League, sort of Babe Ruth-like or Shohei Otani-like. And so this team had two future Hall of Famers on it, playing against a bunch of, you know, guys who would be like low A or, or single A type players today. And they they did very, very well. You're right. And that's how he and Rogan both kind of began their legends there in the Philippines before they came stateside and continued. And he comes back to Indianapolis and starts playing for the Indianapolis. I love the name ABCs. What a name of a team. And they, they won the, the <laughs> Black World Series at the time. There really was no definition of what a World Series would be, but they, they were considered right. the best team. But then you go through his statistics from, and you made this comment, between 1919 and 1925. And this is when he was from like 21 to 28. He probably had the best seven years run of any baseball player in history in terms of, and, you, and at the same time, you're comparing him to Cobb and Ruth in terms of their slugging percentages and the average is hitting 390, Cobb's hitting 382. He's hitting his slugging percentage even better than Ruth. I mean, and then defensively, he was by far superior. I mean, he would play center field and like cover the entire field and then running the bases. He was super fast. I mean, almost when you're listening to the book, considering it almost like Bo Jackson-like in terms of his size, his strength, his speed <laughs> yeah. and everything like that. And, he, and by 1921... That's a great comparison. <laughs> by 1921, he was the, earning $400 a month, which was the highest paid player. And he was just this, you know, just amazing force of nature in terms of being that that period of time the greatest player and in those years people were watching him play like white fans black fans everybody he was drawing 10 20,000 fans a game to watch uh, Oscar Charleston play yeah and, and you're right about all that Ira and in case people are skeptical that of Negro League statistics um, for a long time we didn't have very good Negro League statistics today we actually have pretty good stats uh, from the Negro Leagues, people have painstakingly gone back and searched through old newspaper files and you know, microfiche and archives and found uh, box scores, right, and game accounts and reconstructed statistics pretty amazingly well. And, yeah, Oscar, just to give people an idea, he has about, we have, he has about half the number of played appearances in the Negro Leagues that, that we have found that Willie Mays had, let's say, in the Major Leagues. And half the number of played appearances of Mays he had basically 200 home runs, 300 stolen bases, and hit 350. So if you just kind of double it to get a sense of maybe what he could have done in the majors, maybe a 400 homer, 600 stolen base guy, you know, with a batting average well into the 300s. I mean, no one's ever come close to that sort of set of elite skills in each of those categories. 
And one more thing, in case you think, well, but how would he have fared against Major League pitching? We actually do have stats Oscar playing against Major League pitchers because that happened in exhibition contests uh, all the time. And we have 158 plate appearances, not that many, but he hit he had a higher batting average and a higher slugging percentage by far against Major League pitching than he did against Negro League pitching, including against like Lefty Grove and other kind of Hall of Fame type pitchers. So there's no reason to believe this man wouldn't have excelled uh, in the white majors as much as he did in the Negro Leagues. But and that was what I learned in the book. I did they they played their black league seasons and and it was a bunch of big you know regular games and barnstorming games and everything. <laughs> so it's not like the seasons that we think right now. And at the end of the year in in October, they the black and white teams would play against each other, and you would have these teams, and he'd be facing Lou Gehrig. You said Lefty Grove, Dizzy Gene, Walter Johnson, mm-hmm. and these games would draw yep. tens of thousands. They'd be playing in Yankee Stadium and Oral Park. I mean, amazing the fact that you, you even mentioned it. There were two hundred fifty games between 1901 and 1915 between blacks and white players and the blacks had won 128 out of 115 and these are against top major league teams and again they were more all-star teams where like one team would bring in other people right. and they would have different different teams but that's that i mean that's amazing to have that i don't think people realize that i certainly didn't either uh before i started doing all this research just how often uh black teams squared off against white teams it happened all the time starting in the uh, very early 20th century, if not even earlier. Uh, and so people could get a sense of how good um, black players were. It wasn't like it was some big secret that they were just as good as white players. And it's, these exhibition contests actually played a role, I think, in pre- putting pressure on the end of Jim Crow and segregation. Because if, if, if blacks can excel in this sport clearly, as well as whites can, what's to say they couldn't do that in every other sphere of life and how is this fair? And that, those sort of games and contests, in addition with all sorts of other factors, including the two world wars, you know, finally help us reach a tipping point. But every player who played in the Negro Leagues helped play a role in that way in showing just how, um, you know, there, there was no difference here, essentially, in what, in what um, people could do just because of their skin color. We're talking to Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player on High Road Sports, 959 West Palm Beach. So, and then you mentioned these other, like in the season, they, have the, they had a normal season, but then after the season was over, they go to, many athletes would go to like Cuba to play. And, uh, and he played nine years mm-hmm. in Cuba and became a legend in Cuba in terms of being considered. So now he's the best baseball player ever in the Philippines. Now he's the best baseball player to ever play in Cuba on these great teams in terms of playing in Cuba. Just amazing. Yeah, I think, uh, you, you know, you didn't make as much money then, right? <laughs> Obviously now if you make 10, 15, 20 million dollars a year, you don't really need to go find extra work in the winter. But that wasn't the case. White and black players alike, but especially black players uh, in the teens and 20s and well into the 30s. Um, so, yeah, Oscar would go to Cuba every winter along with a number of other African-American players. And um, there they would often play on, uh, you know, integrated teams, uh, blacks and whites playing together. And he was, as you say, yes, he, he built a legend very quickly. He was able to clear these long fences uh, in many of the Cuban parks. He was able to hit home runs over them, which really impressed people. But more than that, how he could patrol center field, a huge center field, think of like a Coors Field-like center field. Um, he could run things down that people couldn't believe. So he really had this reputation as, as a great defensive center fielder, a great home run hitter. And then, as you pointed out earlier, he was – very charming and charismatic. He made friends in high places. He taught himself Spanish in short order. In his personal scrapbook, he translates Cuban articles about himself into English on the margins. Really a remarkable man. And then we're down here in West Palm Beach, and you mentioned that a couple years he came down, there was actually a league, it was a two-team league between the Breakers and Royal Ponciensa, where they would come and play games two games a week in, uh, on Palm Beach. And you, had, and you had some of the best players playing in those games in the, in the winter also. Yeah, the Hotel League, uh, something for, <laughs> well, there's much to do in, in uh, Palm Beach, I think, in 1916 uh, or 17 as there is today. And so uh, they had the idea to have um, a little league, two teams, and the idea was the players would um, work at the hotels uh, during the week, but also would play on, on the team. And it was very, it was incredibly competitive. As I say in the book, imagine today a league that has People like Trout and Bryce Harper and Christian Yelich and you know, Mike Giancarlo Stanton playing on it. Um, that kind of level of competition, and you could just go out and sort of watch it, you know, with a drink in your hand uh, in the evening. 
uh, there in Palm Beach. It's really <laughs> remarkable to think that that was there, but it was. And then, so he played for Indianapolis. I mean, these they bounced around. I mean, these leagues, it was interesting. It was sort of like today, I mean, some of the players would like some of the flexibility to be moving around and deciding where you want to play. But he played in Indianapolis, right. St. Louis. And then he managed at Harrisburg. So that's the other side of him is that he was not just one of the the greatest player, but he also was one of the top managers. So he managed at Harrisburg, and then he went to, in Philadelphia, this team called Hilldale and managed, uh, managed there, but then made his way back mm-hmm. to Pittsburgh. And I'm a big Pittsburgh uh, fan. I grew up outside Pittsburgh, but for the Homestead Grays, where people mm-hmm. understand, and then he had one of those in 19 years at 30-31, he had one of the best teams of all time when they beat Kansas City Monarchs for the, the championship. Right. And, um, yeah, so one, he starts as a player manager in 1924 in Harrisburg, and he, he manages more than not for the rest of his career uh, up until he dies in 1954. And he's voted in one poll, the only poll I've ever seen, of ex-Negro Leagues players as the greatest manager in the Negro Leagues history. So add that to the greatest player. Uh, and, yeah, he really he, he does well as a manager, especially with the Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh, which he really helps form in 1932 with the money of a man named Gus Greenlee, who is a, a great gangster figure uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and he brings uh, um, Josh Gibson over from the Homestead Grays, and they recruit Cole Papa Bell and uh, Judd Wilson and a number of other future Hall of Fame players. And the Crawfords become a really famous team, and he's and Satchel Page is on that team. And Charleston really proves his managerial, you know, abilities, I think, with that team, especially with all the difficulties that having Paige on your team caused. He wasn't the easiest guy to, to manage. Um, and that's, yeah, that's one of the most legendary teams in Negro League's history. And then he goes on to manage the Philadelphia Stars and, and, um, and his crew at the Indianapolis Clowns. Really remarkable. So he's a great player and a great manager both. Um, I don't know that anybody in, uh, else can, can have – you know, Babe Ruth didn't prove himself to be a great manager, and, and Cobb certainly didn't. I don't know if there's anybody else in that kind of inner tier who also had a great career as a, as a manager. Yeah, I was just enthralled by your description description of the Crawfords and how they would just, I mean, they were like the first dream team where they would go. I mean, they, you talked about a game in Yankee Stadium where they had 35,000 people and Satchel Page pitched. And then this one matchup between Page and Bob Feller and all these other stories about how he managed yeah. an all-star team that beat Casey Stengel. It was just like one after another about these great stories about how this team was, was tremendous. And they played in the stadium, the Greenlee Stadium, which was a brand new stadium at the time. So the Pirates were playing like Forbes Field. and But this yeah. Green Lee Stadium was nicer. It had lights. It had everything like that. So it was. Uh, it was just they were. They were. They were yeah. the dream team of the time. Yeah, pretty much true. I mean, there are obviously other great teams at the time too. The Monarchs, as you mentioned, the Homestead Grays remained really good, but Greenlee had an advantage over all of them. He had more money uh, during the Great Depression than anybody else uh, because he had a very successful street lottery. Uh, that he owned essentially in Pittsburgh. Um, so he had more money flowing into his coffers. He could afford to put together a dream team and build his own stadium. And, um, you know, the great thing about that stadium for these players was uh, not only was it new, but it had its own dressing room. You could dress at the stadium. You couldn't do that at Forbes Field. You couldn't use the dressing room at Forbes Field because that was where the Pirates dressed and segregation uh, didn't allow it. So the players really appreciated that about Greenlee Field. And that speaks to sort of the difficulties they had. You know, this dream team would barnstorm everywhere, including through the South. It wasn't easy barnstorming through the South. It wasn't easy to find a place to eat. It wasn't easy to find a place to sleep. Certainly not a good place to sleep, uh, you know, and they, they had to put up with so much and they were so tough and it built, you see this in Charleston, but in a number of other players, kind of a depth of character. Um, these were guys who went around whining about small things. Uh, they, they, they had been through a lot and yeah, of course, there was no disabled list. You had to keep playing if you wanted to keep your job. I mean, the toughness of these of these men is really just so impressive. And then many times throughout the career, I mean, people are talking about Oscar Charleston breaking the color barrier. And it was really, though, but he played a role in it because in 1944, Branch Rickey got the approval to sign black players and he was trying to scout the the black mm-hmm. leagues. And then he supposedly, you write in the book that he was perhaps the first scout, the first African-American scout in terms of finding it. He's discovered, or well, not yeah. discovered, but he pushed Roy Campanella. And I love, if you want to tell that story about how Roy Campanella mm-hmm. could have been before Jackie Robinson, but there was just confusion when he met with Branch Rickey. Yeah, so this is the third part of Oscar's legacy. Besides being a great player and great manager, he's also a pioneering scout. Um, there's a league called the United States League 
that Branch Rickey got involved in in 1945 as a new uh, black baseball league. And uh, Rickey got involved with it as a way to provide cover for his scouts to go to um, uh, black baseball games because otherwise he stood out. He didn't want to be to learn about his plan to be the first to sign black players for the Dodgers. So he has the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers in the United States League and brings Oscar Charleston in to be his manager for that team, but really also to scout for the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And one of the people they asked for his opinion on is Roy Campanella. And because Campanella got started playing when he was like 15 years old, professional baseball. He's a huge kid, uh, very talented, obviously. And so Ricky just didn't believe that his given age was his real age. Surely he was actually like 30, 31, 32, not 24, whatever it was, the age they were looking at him. Uh, and so Charleston, though, because he, is, uh, he had known Campanella for a long time, he knew Philadelphia baseball scene very well, was able to assure Ricky the scout that Campanella's stated age was his real age, and he pushed him to sign him, which, of course, the Dodgers did, and he scouted a number of other players as well. The story you're referring to, so Campanella uh, gets called into Ricky's office, um, uh, asked to come in. Uh, he's not yet signed with the Dodgers at all. He's just playing in the Negro Leagues. Uh, it's like two weeks after um, Ricky has met with Jackie Robinson and has signed him uh, secretly to a contract. Uh, so, or at least they've, had, they've talked about signing to a contract. He offers the same thing to Campanella, but Campanella thinks he's talking about the Brown Dodgers the whole time. He can't even get through his mind that Ricky might be talking about signing him to the, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so he says, hey, you know, get out of here. I don't, need, I don't want to sign. I don't want to play for that team. I, I got a good thing going here in the Negro Leagues. And it wasn't until Jackie tells him the true state of affairs that they're playing cards at a hotel in New York City that Campanella realizes the enormity of his mistake, <laughs> that he could have potentially been the first to sign and in which case, Oscar would have maybe gotten a lot of historical credit and his name entered into the roles. Uh, but yeah, Campanella always thought he could have been the first to actually reach the majors uh, had he understood exactly what Ricky was talking to him about that day. Wow. And then, you know, we, this is the anniversary of the Black Leagues coming up uh, this year. They've been doing some ceremony and, you, and they talked about after integration and the players. It really it was surprisingly the, 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 the Black Leagues and the teams just started to fold. And that um, by like 52, 53, they, it was finished in terms of how that ended. And you mentioned the book that there was at that point you know, in the 40s, there were more uh, African-Americans playing baseball than there were after integration because everybody was trying to get in the leagues and those things. So that was it's sad that in terms yeah. of that's where one aspect of that and sad in terms of that the Africa they didn't they didn't they should have probably brought the black leagues into the minor league system and that would have let the blacks keep playing yeah, yeah that would have been ideal uh, one of the very unintended consequences was as you say there were fewer african-americans playing professional baseball probably in 1949 or 1950 than there were in 1946 or 45 prior to integration not what anybody had intended but the fans left the Negro League so fast. Um, they, instead of being a symbol of black self-help and we can do it ourselves, you know, and being proud of these institutions, almost overnight they become a symbol of, of Jim Crow, you know, exactly what they had been obviously intended uh, to fight against. So not, not something anybody, I think, really saw coming. But uh, in retrospect, there had been some ideas of bringing, say, the Negro National League into organized baseball as a, a high minor league or something like that um, seemed, was talked about with other leagues. And maybe maybe that would have been better. You, you could have had those leagues functioning much as historic, you know, HBUs do today, right, historically black universities. Um, it was, yeah, these things never work out exactly as anybody planned, I guess. So we've been talking to Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player on Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. So you wrote this book a few months ago. It's been published. What's been the response? I mean, do you feel that from the baseball community, there's this now this more rediscovery of Oscar Charleston? Do you think more people are going to be talking about Oscar Charleston? So when we mention the name Oscar Charleston, people are like, oh, who is he? Like, is it ever going to be at that level? <laughs> I don't know if it'll ever be at that level. I'm, I'm hopeful. Joe Posnanski, who's um, one of the greatest baseball writers writing today, did his own top 100 players of all time on the Athletics website over the last several months. And he ranks Charleston fifth. He really gave Charleston his due. Uh, really, Bonds, Barry Bonds is the only guy he has above him that James didn't. Um, I think I have that correct. So that was something. 
I, his name is popping up a little bit more in you know Google alerts and stuff for me. I, I see it mentioned more often, so maybe this will get him mentioned along with Page and Gibson as an exemplar of, of the greatest um, that the Negro Leagues had to offer. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We just, you know, the thing is we just need, it's not just Oscar, as I said before, we need biographies of so many other forgotten black players. There, there, there are two dozen, a dozen to two dozen who are in the Hall of Fame who don't have a biography today. And so um, there's a lot more work to be done. I think it would all be to the good. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you writing this book. It's a phenomenal book. It's called The Life and Legend of Baseball's uh, Greatest Forgotten Player, Oscar Charleston. It's available on Amazon and Google. I mean, I'm sorry, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, and uh, I would definitely suggest reading the book. It was phenomenal. And I really appreciate you writing the book and coming on Iron Sports. Thanks for having me. Great stuff there, Ira. So I, before we uh, get to what you're doing this week, I think you saw a Chainsmokers concert over the weekend. Let's hear about that. <laughs> well, I just want to talk about it because it was like one of those things where I think it's the future, not only of concerts, but also the future in some ways, some sports. In fact, that you would have a limited amount of cars. The cars that came in, that you, would only, you could not walk to this, you could whatever. You had to come in a car, five person to a car, six person per car max. And then when you parked the car around you, it was not like parking at a normal state place. There might have been like bus parking for every car. So you might have a few hundred cars, bus parking for cars, and uh, you, you could get out of your car, but no walking around. They, and they brought you, had to have you, you could not walk around. They brought refreshments there. Um, they, I didn't even know where the bathrooms were, but I didn't see it was a shorter concert. Um, but it was done in a, in a way that, I mean, I felt... I felt like I social distance wise and safe wise. Everybody had masks on, all of those things. I thought it was fine. Right in right in the huge field. I could see doing boxing in a field like that, some UFC with the cars. Um, but it, it seemed like it was very a good way to do it with the car aspect of it and parking the cars and not having people walk around and feeling safe in that environment. It was it was a phenomenal concert for the chain smokers. But from a sportsman it was an event and it just happened out of nowhere. It was for a charity and a friend had a ticket at the last minute they called and I was able to go to it. But I just thought it was pretty cool to be at an venue with that and see how they could figure it out by limiting the key is to limit the people per cars you can't have like 10 people in a car six people per car you come in the car you stay there and you don't let the people walk around and keep the social distancing we are out of time on behalf of ira and harrison i'm mike let's talk next monday night it's iron sports